morning, I want to talk about names and story and suffering and taking control of allowing people to define for themselves who they are instead of prescribing it to them. Last week, we kicked off a sermon series on overlooked biblical characters by introducing Shifra and Pua. And today, we're going to continue with part two of that series by examining Hagar. If this sermon series were a superhero movie franchise, then part one was the, the movie where we established the world and the rules. We set the tone for what we're creating. And then part two is not actually a sequel. It's a gritty reboot sequel where we go back and change the perception of the first one. And that's because as we will come to see, the story of Hagar actually changes the way we see the story of Shifra and Pua. But we have to go back in time in order to do that. Shifra and Pua's superpower was the fear of God. If Hagar has a superpower, it's hope. Of the characters that we're going to look at and examine in this series, Hagar is probably the best known. Her name comes up in a story that is somewhat familiar to most people. But her story is one of injustice and suffering. And one of the injustices about her story is the very legacy that it has left. That's because Hagar is familiar to many Christians, but in her story, she is most often reduced to a minor character. The way her story is usually told is from someone else's perspective. As with so many biblical characters, she's overshadowed by more famous characters, ones from the higher tiers that we talked about last week. Abraham is one of those characters. He's a tier one biblical character, one of the most famous in all of Scripture. And his wife Sarah is not far behind. Their stories are famous. And one part of their story involves a slave woman named Hagar. And the way that this story is usually presented is about how Sarah lacked faith that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. God had promised Abraham many descendants. And Sarah loses faith as they get old, and she convinces Abraham to have children by other means. And then God, of course, keeps his promise, as he always intended to, providing future generations with an object lesson in keeping faith in God's intentions. That's how this story is usually presented, from Abraham and Sarah's perspective, and it's an important one. But it completely overlooks poor Hagar. Hagar is abused and discarded in the worst way. So let's examine this story from her perspective. First, a few words of caution. Hagar's story is incredibly disturbing. I will attempt to not be too graphic. I don't want to be unnecessarily graphic. But if you're watching this at home or you're here and you are sensitive to these sorts of things or you have children who are sensitive, please keep an eye and uh, be aware that this is a very violent story, a brutal story, and so I will not be offended if this is not a message for you. But it's important that we not gloss over the facts. We need to wrestle with how incredibly brutal her story is. Just the fact that it makes us uncomfortable is not reason to not talk about it. And so it's important that we establish one honest truth right off the bat this morning. And it's this. 
what happened to Hagar is nothing short of sexual assault. Let's not pretend it was anything less. It was sexual assault by Abraham with his wife Sarah as an accomplice. There is simply no other way to read this story and define what happened to her. Now, some would argue that verse 3 of our text makes clear that because Abraham took Hagar as his wife, that this was all consensual. Unfortunately, scholars and people who study these texts tell us that the facts just don't line up with that. In fact, the oldest translations we have of of Genesis are much more ambiguous. And later we're told that Abraham takes a second wife, not a third one. So scholars and people who, who study these things for a living tell us that the reality is that it wasn't so much a marriage as a forced marriage. If they were married at all, it was against Hagar's will. And I know that that can be jarring to hear and even offensive to some of us to hear that. Abraham is one of the great pillars of our faith. In fact, the three largest religions in the world share him in common. And so to put it in such stark terms is quite jarring. But as we will come to see, the fracturing of these three Abrahamic faiths, as they're known, actually starts right here in this story. We cannot gloss over the facts for our own comfort. Trying to justify what happened to Hagar as something less than the brutal act it was only dehumanizes her. Because it, ca- it, it, it causes us to not realize, that to, to read the humanity into who she was. It also causes us to overlook some very important lessons. It's interesting that with all of its violence and subjugation and race and power dynamics, this story is actually told through names. When we pause to understand the names of the characters, then we begin to understand this story itself. And so we'll return to this name, this, this theme of names throughout my message this morning. But let's start with our main character, with our protagonist, our superhero, Hagar. In order to properly understand who Hagar is, we have to understand her name. Hagar literally means the stranger or the non-citizen. Hagar is a person who is defined by being foreign. She was Egyptian. I mentioned earlier that this was the gritty reboot, of, and it changes the way we perceive our story from last week of Shifra and Pua. And here is the first per- parallel. In the story of Shifra and Pua, the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt. But in Hagar's story, which comes first, she is the Egyptian that is first enslaved by Jews. Now again, let's make no mistake. Hagar is a full-blown slave. This is not the Sunday school version of this story, which paints her as a willing servant. She wasn't. Scholars actually tell us that she had most likely been a gift to Abraham and Sarah from the Egyptian pharaoh because of some ruckus that occurred during his time living there. Hagar, a human being, was given as a possession from a king and gratefully accepted by a hero of our faith told you that this story is riddled with power dynamics. We're just getting started. So Hagar is forced into slavery to a foreign master, and then when Abraham is 85 years old, 
She is assaulted and forced to carry his baby. And again, to be clear, this wasn't meant to be Abraham and Hagar's baby. Sarah intended to raise this child as her own. Verse 2 makes that clear. These are the circumstances of how Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn, is conceived. Instead of gratitude to all of this injustice that has happened to, Sarah, to Hagar, the passage tells us that Sarah showed contempt for her. She dealt har harshly with her, the text says. Some translations use the word mistreated. Again, this is part of the story that has been whitewashed for years. <clears throat> we tend to think of this, or the way this is typically presented between these two women is as petty animosity. The most common and incredibly sexist version of this story holds that this was a petty squabble between two hormonal women. But a little bit of study shows that it was so much more than that, much more severe and much more one-sided. In fact, the word that is translated variously as mistreated or contempt in our passage this morning is exactly the same word that comes up in the story of Shifra and Pua the one where Pharaoh makes the Jewish slaves' lives hard. In that story, which is written from the Jewish perspective, that word is translated for us as to make them miserable. In the story of Hagar, that word gets translated as mistreated. It's not quite the same thing, is it? It implies, the word, the original language, implies more than just harsh conditions. It, it's about intentionally making things difficult. It's the breaking of a person's mind and body. In short, it's abuse. Again, we see the symmetry here between our first two heroes. Hagar, an Egyptian, is abused by Sarah, the mother of the Jewish people. And generations later, the Egyptians return the favor by abusing her descendants. And that's the thing about dysfunction and abuse. It's cyclical. Abuse begets abuse in almost every situation. People who are abused end up themselves becoming abusers. And this isn't just a personal thing. This isn't just something that happens on a personal one-to-one -one level. We see this dynamic play out in almost every situation where human beings are involved workplaces, families, politics, when one person or group feels mistreated, as soon as they get power, they almost always mistreat those who are not in power. It's a truism of the human condition that despite it never having worked once, we try to heal ourselves by bleeding on other people. It's as if we can't get past the idea that spreading our pain will cause it to be lessened. But of course, that's not how it works. Pain and suffering cannot be spread, only multiplied. The cycle of suffering that began with Sarah and Hagar continues to this day, and it has only grown worse with every passing generation. Students of history already know what I'm talking about. Hagar births Ishmael, and later Sarah births Isaac. 
And the dysfunction that began with this story continues as Sarah convinces Abraham to disown Hagar and Ishmael despite him being the firstborn. And so it comes to pass that Jews and Arabs became enemies. Hagar, the Egyptian mother of Ishmael, and Sarah, the Jewish mother of Isaac. All anyone has to do is turn on the news any night of the week to see this cycle of dysfunction and abuse and power dynamics playing out more than 6,000 years later. The descendants of these two families continue this cycle of abuse today. While both Abraham and Sarah had treated this woman harshly and cruelly, the Lord stepped in and gave her a blessing beyond imagination. Hagar might have been a slave, but now she would become the matriarch of billions of people. Hagar might have felt like she needed to run away, but God instilled her with courage and blessing that is felt even today. So back to our story, back to names. I find it fascinating that in all of Holy Scripture, God is known by many names. Of course, he refers to himself as the great I Am. And then for various reasons, he is referred to by many other names throughout the Bible. <clears throat> but of all the names he is known by, only one was ever given to him by a human being. Only one human being has the temerity to name him a woman. And not just a woman, but a slave woman. And not just a slave woman, but an abused slave woman named Hagar. God seems to have a penchant for using the seemingly low. And this is one such example of that. Hagar has run away. She's trying to get away from her cruel mistress. And so she flees. She runs into the desert and she finds a spring. And there, we're told, an angel of the Lord appears to her. Now, it's worth understanding that both Christian, Christian tradition, as well as most biblical scholars, actually think that this angel was a pre-incarnate manifestation of God. That it was understood by her as an angel, but most interpretations and scholars think that this was actually God incarnate, or God manifest, excuse me. We can't be sure, of course, but the way that the story unfolds leads us to conclude that this celestial being was not so much an angel as a version of God. And so this heavenly being asks, asks Hagar two questions. He says, where have you come from and where are you going? And Hagar's answer is so simple that it's easy to overlook the lesson within it. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. She was asked two questions. She answers with one sentence. But somehow that answer seems to, to satisfy God's questions. Because that one sentence actually answers both of them. That's the thing about suffering. It's all-consuming. Where did you come from? Suffering. And where are you going? Away from suffering. That's it. That's her entire plan. She doesn't know where she's going. She simply knows she's going away. I came from an unhealthy place and I just want to get away from it. That answers where you come from and where you're going. She cares not where she actually ends up. She comes from a bad place and so she's simply 
headed away. The stranger, the person whose name means the stranger, is trying to get away. After God tells her to return to Abraham and Sarah so that he can once again use a terrible situation for his glory, that's when Hagar has the audacity to name him. She names him the one who sees me. Again, she is the only human being in recorded history to do this, so let's not gloss over it. Because the name she gives God is really quite something. The one who sees me is what she named him when she was at her lowest point. Right at the height of her suffering. Right as she was broken and humiliated and hurting. Despite being told to return to the situation that caused that, she somehow feels seen. God sees her intimately. The text doesn't actually tell us that he said anything to her to make her feel better or to make her feel seen. She just knew that she was seen, and that was enough for her. God had seen her pain. She didn't need to cry out or express it. She didn't need to try to express that which words could not convey. God saw it. And here is perhaps Hagar's most important lesson. God always sees suffering. He always sees injustice. Whatever it is that you are facing today, the one who sees knows your pain. He identifies with it. He's been there and he's felt it. Our Lord Jesus was no stranger to pain and suffering. He suffered from people lying about him, betraying him, condemning him, and physically assaulting him. But he didn't let that stop him from enjoying an abundant life and inviting others into it. He allowed the Holy Spirit to instill him with courage and joy and peace and victory, and he invites us into that same place. Jesus understands that we, too, will endure pain and suffering. He tells us this in John 16. But along with telling us that we will experience trouble, he gives us encouragement and courage and that ever-present superpower of Hagar's hope. John 16, verse 33. In this world you will have trouble, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. And that is the key for all of us today. We don't have to face our troubles alone. We don't have to let them get the best of us. We don't have to run away. We don't have to give up on our hopes and dreams. We don't have to feel like our lives are over, and that it's all downhill from here. Whatever injustice you face today, whatever demons you wrestle with, God sees you intimately. You are not alone. When you can't put into words the sorrow or the pain that you feel, God sees you. When you struggle in quiet and put on the mask that pretends everything is okay, God sees you. Hagar returns to live with her abusers, to live with her son, Ishmael. By the way, back to names, Ishmael's name, we're told, means God hears. 
The God who sees is also the God who hears. The suffering and hurt that begins in this story is later reinforced once Abraham and Sarah have a child of their own. and They banish Hagar and Ishmael from their presence. The Bible never mentions either of them again after that. Hagar packs up and leaves. And 6,000 years later, the world is still dealing with this cycle of abuse and dysfunction that these two women and their sons created. The Muslim faith actually calls Hagar the mother of the faith. It didn't happen overnight, but a whole new religion sprang up because of the way that this one woman was mistreated. This whole ordeal and the aftermath of it are difficult. It's difficult for us to wrestle with and to come to terms with our understanding of what went on and the consequences. It's difficult in the same way that it is difficult for us to reconcile our own suffering and pain and dysfunction. It forces us to look in the mirror and ask if in any given situation we are Hagar or Sarah. Are we the abused or the abuser? Are we contributing to the cycle of hurt or helping it stop? But that is exactly where the hope is, friends. In big and small ways, every day, we can be the person who stops the cycle. We can be the person who says enough, enough hurt, enough suffering. Dr. Martin Luther King famously said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. How would this story, how would Hagar's story have been different? How would human history have been different if Sarah and Hagar had come together in their suffering and supported one another? Again, I want to focus on Hagar this morning, but part of her story is acknowledging, acknowledging the very real grief that Sarah felt at not being able to produce a child for Abraham. What if instead of bleeding their hurt on each other, these two women had come together and worked with each other and supported each other through their pain and their suffering and their grief? It's not at all an exaggeration to say that the flow of human history would have been significantly altered that day. And so I hope that we can all take away hope from this violent, awful story. Hagar's story is shocking in its brutality. But God sees her. And he provides yet another opportunity for reconciliation and healing when she returns to her son and his father. And these people missed that opportunity. It's my fervent prayer today that the God who sees will be the God who is your focus as you look for those opportunities to promote justice and healing in your own life and among those you meet this week. But more than anything, I want you to hear me when I say that Hagar's story is one of hope because God makes clear that he sees her pain. She is confused and hurt. She didn't really know what to do 
But the Lord met her there and then by that spring near Shur. And he will meet us as well. No matter what your circumstances, God makes a way. He is the light in the darkness, the light that drives out darkness. This morning, let's allow the Lord to work through our suffering with us. Let's realize that we can have strength through his Holy Spirit, and let us understand that he will give us rest. He will give us encouragement. He will give us peace. And yes, he will even give us hope because he is the one who sees you. Let's pray. Eternal Father, you created us in your own image and likeness. And we acknowledge that sin has warped the minds of men throughout the world, and that there is much injustice and much carelessness for people and for personal responsibility. Lord, when you are excluded from the hearts and consciousness of human beings, the inevitable result is that people suffer. There is so much injustice and corruption taking place in our world today. Not only in the lives of individuals, but also in the corridors of power and in the places where decisions are made. We pray, Lord, that you will right all the wrongs that are taking place within our world and vindicate those who are being treated unjustly. Keep us, we pray, from trying to take matters into our own hands of vengeance. For we know vengeance is yours. We know that you will repay with grace and justice and mercy. We pray that you will give justice and peace to all those who have been cruelly and unfairly treated by their fellow human beings and made injustice and carelessness that they have had to endure by the means to draw them into your own saving grace, we pray, give them peace. We ask these things in the precious name of the one who sees us. Amen.